Welcome to the CEC Report. It's the 18th of May. I'm Robert Barwick, and I'm joined today by CEC Leader Craig Isherwood. Welcome, Craig. Yeah, thanks, Robbie. In this week's CEC Report, tax won't fix the economy. We need a new financial structure. And who is really interfering in our democracy? Before we begin, Craig, let me just emphasise again for our viewers, we need you to continue to work with us on our campaign for Glass-Steagall. So, like last time, um, if you haven't signed our petition on change.org, please do. Every time someone signs it, emails are sent to members of parliament. What we're in is a position, Craig, where the Royal Commission will start again next week. Banking will again become the subject. Members of the, but there's signs, we'll be discussing this in the show in the, in the last episode and previous episodes. There, there is signs that people are talking about the need for banking separation, but the banks are trying to say, oh yeah, but you don't need to go that far, let's try and do other things first, right? Yeah. And it's all, it's all a ploy, it's all a scam. And the public has to demand something that's going to lock the predators out of the real economy. And we'll yeah. talk about that more in a minute yeah. as well. Yeah, well, I think, Robbie, we'll talk more about Glass-Steagall as we go along for our new viewers so people don't uh, get lost. Exactly. And so we're, that, that's the uh, first item. Tax won't fix the economy. We need a new financial structure. Um, the big issue, Craig, is, and we'll get to Glass-Steagall via this avenue, right, because we want to come at it from a slightly different angle. Everyone knows that in Australia at the moment we've just had the budget handed down and the opposition has, has announced their budget proposal and the issue is tax. They're competing with each other on tax, right? Mm. Our tax cuts are better than your tax cuts, yada, yada, yada. Yep. What it shows actually is the continued neoliberal hold over Australian politics because as a global rejection of neoliberalism, sweeping the world, but in Australia... The, the top of the major parties, including the Labor Party, Labor Party is making some concessions because some of them are starting to see there's the shifting sands, but their relationship with the vested interests at the top of both parties is so tight, they're not dealing with, they're not actually saying let's have a structural reform of the economy. It's all about, oh, let's, have, let's, let's compete on stuff like tax cuts, right? Yeah. And that, that's a neoliberal worldview, yeah. right? both of that. This neoliberalism for the new viewers, Robbie, is the, is the policy of small government, Everything has to be run by private enterprise, that the banks have a free reign, support yeah. for free trade, for globalisation, which in turn means shutting down local domestic manufacturers based upon the fact that we can't compete under trade terms that are governed by the financial system. Privatisation. It's privatisation. All this economic rationalism, what you've seen with the electricity, you know, privatisation and so forth, that's all economic rationalism. And Robbie, the point I want to make is it's all new. And this is not something that is sort of... Uh, been around for 200 years. I mean, free trade and you know globalisation and the British, uh, you know, free model of free trade has that has been. You've seen that throughout history. But what we've seen in this country, it was a concerted effort since the 1970s to basically push these uh, policies yeah. onto the Australian people and transform the Australian economy because away for, from. Because for most of the century before that, and even before that, was a generally accepted view, a common sense view that yeah, private enterprise is great, go your hardest, but. The government has responsibilities that it cannot absolve itself. Yeah, even the Liberal right. Party, you know, the party of the exactly. bankers had people in it that were supporting, look, we need entrepreneurial uh, enterprise, we need to support industry, we need to support manufacturers and stuff. I mean, that's a bit strange coming from the Liberal Party, right? Because they're, 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 they're a total free trade party. But that's, but that's what they were in those days. Yeah. Um, whereas now, so, so it's flipped over a bit, whereas so Labor now will, will speak in words against neoliberalism 
But in fact, at the top, they still support privatization and all these types of things, right? Yeah. And that's what's got to change. Um, anyway, so let's, let's get on to the, tax, the, the, the nuts and bolts of this tax discussion, though. For the first point I want to make, Craig, is the whole issue is actually bogus. And the reason I say that is because around the world, countries are competing with each other to cut their tax rates. But what are we competing for? We're told, oh, oh you're competing for foreign investment. And it's just ridiculous. We've put out material that shows how Australia's economy performed best in both world wars when we were cut off from foreign investment. Yeah. We had a Commonwealth Bank in both world wars that generated the investment we needed sovereignly, domestically. Right? We didn't need foreign investment, and that's when our economy performed the best. Go look it up, and you can call in and get our material from it. Well, specifically, Robbie, we've just produced <coughs> what we call our banking man manual, which is a 100-page document. There's actually, the first two articles in that Goes through go that. through this very, very specifically. That the, great, the, the depression did not have to happen in this country. This was a political move, and then, as you saw, as you just mentioned, it was absolutely critical, is that when push come to shove, we had no foreign investment able to come in, the Commonwealth Bank, but the political forces behind Chifley and Curtin said we're going to take the Commonwealth Bank and use it as a vehicle to stabilise and to develop our country for war purposes at that time. You know, after the war, Chifley wanted to take it further, but of course he, yep. he got smashed. Um, so that's, that's one point about this foreign investment thing. You know, it's, it's, it's a joke, actually. The second point about it is that Look at the way it's actually working in practice. We've got $2 trillion in super here, a huge chunk of which, Craig, gets invested overseas. Meanwhile, overseas pension funds, like in Canada and places, they come and invest their pension funds here, mm. right? And all you're doing is just moving money around the world and for the sake of, and, and we're told, oh, they're, they're chasing the best tax um, rates. I mean, it's just rubbish. That's one part of it. Second part of it is, I'll give you the, the example of Singapore and BHP. So. For a long time, not just recently, a long time, Singapore has been, BHP has been headquartered in Singapore where they have a 17% corporate tax rate. And we've been told that Scott Morrison has cited Singapore and BHP as an example. Look, see, because Singapore's got 17%, that's why BHP's there and paying that tax instead of here. Oh, really? Well, if the government had any, you know what, right? They would say to BHP, you want to go pay Singapore's tax rate you go mine Singapore's iron ore. Oh, there's no iron ore in Singapore? Then give us a break, right? You tell them you're here, you're mining our iron ore, you're paying our tax rate. And this, this, it's all a bluff. Hmm. But the politicians, they're not stupid, they're corrupt. They're in on the bluff, right? They leave their jobs and they go and work for these big corporations, etc. So that's just, just to settle that part. And then the other thing about this ridiculous question, to, to, to dismiss it um, finally, is... There's, a, there's really good resources people can look at that shows the whole reason we have this issue of countries competing with each other over taxes because after World War II, the British Empire saw it was losing its territorial power and decided to shore up its financial imperial power and it turned its territories, especially in the, in the Caribbean, into tax havens and it did that to undermine nations. So that there was this, it had the same effect of the old pirates in the old days, pirates of the Caribbean, where um, suddenly all these all the unscrupulous businesses in different countries would go and move their affairs to those tax havens, and then that became the excuse inside those countries. Oh, see, we've got to compete with that, mm. right? And Singapore actually had that as its origin as well. Um, this has been revealed in a book called The Spider's Web. Um, or no, the book is called Treasure Islands by Nicholas Shaxon, which is a really excellent to read. And then that has been made into a film called The Spider's Web. Britain's Second Empire, How Britain and Its Dependent Territories 
became the world's largest tax haven. And they go through the details and I really urge people to, to watch that just to see what we're dealing with and don't let these politicians fool you because the bottom line is you wouldn't, when you see it for what it is, instead of saying, oh, we've got to compete with that. No, all the countries of the world should band together and whack sanctions on the United Kingdom as a rogue state for setting this up. Yep. until they stopped it. Yeah, I think Jeremy Corbyn, Rob, is calling for the shutdown of tax havens because you know, in, internally and domestically inside the United Kingdom, you've got all this poverty, you've got collapse of infrastructure. He says, well, shut down the tax yeah. havens and bring that income back. It's one, of the, reasons, income. It's one of the reasons he's a real, a genuine threat to the establishment. Because it's he's, he's tackling the City of London and the financial structures that are actually crippling the UK economy. Yep. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to turn this on its head and talk about how we need to change the structure, not the taxes. Welcome back to the CEC Report, where we're talking about tax won't fix the economy, we need a new financial structure. And Craig, before the break, we were discussing how it's ridiculous the way all the countries of the world are forced to compete with each other yep. on this race to the bottom of who can have the lowest tax rate, right? But we had this tax debate in Australia between the two major parties, and it's irrelevant it's, it's almost irrelevant to, how the, to the problems we have that need to be solved in Australia. So let's look at that now. If I can sum up the biggest problem in the Australian economy, it's something that probably a lot of people haven't considered. It's we have become financialized, And from the 80s on, we were de-industrialised, right? Under all these neoliberal policies you rattled off before, free trade, globalisation, free markets, etc., our, our productive industries were decimated, right? Became shrank to become much smaller parts of our economy. And we became financialized. We now have the biggest financial sector in the world. Hmm. Financial services is 9% of GDP. That's bigger than financial services is to the UK or to the US. And they're the ones that have got Wall Street and London in them, right? So this is big. That is made up, you know, there's two trillion of super in that, right? Uh, there's, there's $37 trillion of derivatives in that. There's all the banks lending to it. There's all the real estate speculation in that. When banks speculate on real estate, Craig, they're not looking at a house and saying, oh, we can lend money for this house and we'll make a little bit extra from the interest coming back, etc. No, there's all this financial dealings associated with that mortgage, mm -hmm. right? Mortgage-backed securities and derivatives, and they can make stacks of money out of that. And meanwhile, some poor sucker has to buy that house and try and meet the, the debt payments on it, yep. right? Service the debt payments on it. So this is a fi it, this financialized economy and it's money chasing money and chasing a return. That's what we've got in Australia. Which right? will collapse. It has to collapse. Because this is just the same, it's like a Ponzi scheme. Actually a giant economy-wide Ponzi scheme where nothing actually real is being created. Exactly. Now by contrast, or well, uh, let me say a few other things about the current structure of the economy. Construction is the second biggest sector after financial services. Now, while that looks physical and productive, it's distorted and it's so big because of the financial speculation in real estate. That's the only reason why, right? And a lot of that is setting us up for a huge property crash as we've been long forecasting. And then you look at manufacturing and agriculture, which once upon a time, not that long ago, before the, before the 80s, were the biggest sectors of our economy. Now they've shrunk right down. Australian manuf manufacturing is 6% of the Australian economy, the lowest in the Western world, right? Um, now, so who's you know, doing the work to uh, pay the taxes, 
pay the interest on debts, etc., to keep this financial system propped up? That's the that's the question you've got to ask yourself, right? We, we, we're really out of balance here. Mm -hmm. Now, I put a I put a chart up on the screen. This comes from we produced this flyer last year. Australia's sleepwalking to economic Armageddon, and that term comes from a uh, former advisor to the Liberal Party, John Adams, right? And he's, we, we uh, borrowed some of his material for this flyer. And in this chart, you will see this credit to housing as a percent of GDP, right? Where it's gone from 20% of GDP was lent into housing in 1991. And that's now, as of 2015, that got to 90% and that would be closing probably around 100% now, yeah. right? And we've got 200% of household debt to um, income is the situation here, the highest household debt in the world as a result of that. But that, what's that money chasing? It's not chasing anything productive. No, speculation, housing prices. Exactly. And meanwhile, if you could put in a chart of bank lending to, to businesses, small and medium enterprises, the line goes the other way, mm -hmm. right? Radically the other way. So those small and medium enterprises, they employ the people who um, have to earn the incomes to pay back the debt. And this is the policy of the banks, Robbie, that are now under the microscope of the Royal Commission. That's right. And we're now witnessing the sort of corruption that this sort of policy brings. Well, it's one of the reasons the problem is so big, because our financial sector is so big. Yeah. Right? Everyone is affected by it. No and one I, escapes this. And I think people are a bit, bit shocked recently about these so-called enforceable undertakings. You know, a bank can make $100 million in income out of illegal activities, yep. get slapped on the wrist for $3 million and get away with it. Yep. Well, I think we should have triple the amount that they make as the penalty, at least, and, part of and that, jail the people involved. No, we should. If they make $100 million from that sort of illegal activity, the fine's not $3 million, but $300 million. But as we know, Craig, there's a blackmail element here, and this, it was made clear in America where this term of it emerged called too big to jail, Yeah. right? Because... APRA says our responsibility is to keep stability in the financial system, and if they took that kind of action, that could cause instability. Therefore, they've got us by the short and curlies, well, and we, we have to let them get away with it. This is a political problem, Robbie, because, look, the solution is very clear. It's, it's not a mystery. First of all, we've got to go with Glass-Steagall banking separation. You've got to have a sound commercial banking system within your economy. Now, what does that achieve, though, in relation to what we've just talked about? Well, it means that you separate out. You get rid of this speculation. You can't have banks you know, involved in literally printing money for the sake of propping up housing bubbles. See, in, a Robbie, in, in an economy, you've got certain classes of expenses. You've got legitimate necessary yeah. overhead. You've got speculative overhead or waste. And then you've got uh, expenses that build the physical economy. That's where people go to work, right? That's your infrastructure. That's your manufacturing. That's your farming, right? That's where the money has to be actually, not money, I should say. That's where the wealth credit. is produced. That's yeah, where the, the, you put the credit in there, wealth is produced yeah. from there that everyone benefits So from. with the, with the Glass-Steagall banking separation, Robert, you separate out that speculative aspect of the banking, which has gone out of control, as we see with the Royal Commission, from the actual need for real regulated banking for the commercial sector. And that leaves that, all that credit into the real economy. Yeah, this is, what this is what Curtin Shifley did with the Commonwealth Bank in World War II, is that they used the Commonwealth Bank as the regulator that strictly enforced the idea that credit had to go into the productive economy. And that, in many cases, that was the building up of munitions for the war, but it was also for farming and to support the domestic economy when we were actually cut off from credit from around the world. So Glass-Steagall, yeah. Craig, would have that effect of 
sort of stopping the rot and excising out the speculation, what else do we need to do structurally to make the economy actually well, move along? We have to have a national bank, Robbie, an actual bank that creates the credit owned and run by the government for the purpose of directing large amounts of credit into the productive economy, and that means building large-scale infrastructure projects. Not this mentality where you just spend the money in the cities, right, but yeah. actually big projects like we've covered on the back of our Australian Alert Service this week, which is, you know, where China is building, constructing an entire new city region south of Beijing to deal with the fact that Beijing's overpopulated. You know, 23 million people live in, 22 million people live in Beijing at the moment. They're going to cap the population in Beijing. They've got all sorts of structural problems like pollution and overcrowding in Beijing. So they're going to build an entire new city south of Beijing, plan it out with a, with a maximum of 5 million people in it. And they're going to connect this, these cities up with Beijing and the entire region through a network of high-speed rail. I think there's, a, there's Beijing, this new city, and then the Tianjin port city, yeah. and they're going to have a triangle of rail there. Yeah, it's, it's a planned approach. Now, Robbie, what if we were to have bipartisan support in this country for real economic development? It's going to take bipartisan or tripartisan or all the parties to actually commit to real economic development and not just the idea of using infrastructure as a political to get votes. You have an example, Craig, of Dubbo, what Dubbo well, could become. Dubbo is, what, 800 kilometres, uh, I think it's about uh, 500, 600 kilometres from Melbourne and about 300 kilometres from Sydney. Hook Dubbo up to high-speed trains means that people can commute between Melbourne, Sydney, Sydney, Dubbo, uh, Melbourne City, Sydney, you know, and well, Dubbo. We'll put on the screen um, Lance Endersby's proposal for an Australian ring railway, which would go through Dubbo up to Darwin. And, and the idea is that then you could develop it. Dubbo as another major regional city. Bear in mind, Beijing is not on the coast. No, it's inland. It's, it's an inland, landlocked city. So you can actually have a plan of saying, okay, we are going to build new cities around this country. In fact, Gough Whitlam had that idea of building multiple new cities outside the major cities. So this idea of cramming everyone into the cities, the major you know, capital cities, would be offset by the idea we're going to develop very good regional centres with the hospitals, the transportation, the water necessary to support it, decent planned housing, low-cost affordable housing. The key here is the arteries of high-speed trains, Robbie. And what that does is you're not just doing it for decentralisation for the hell of it. You have a high-speed rail through there, as Lance Endersby, the late Lance Endersby uh, emphasised, a high-speed rail going through the inland of Australia through Dubbo, not, the, not to go to Brisbane, you'll have trunk lines to Brisbane, but if you go to Darwin, you can have anything within Australia from the south 24 hours from Darwin, and then another 24 hours from the biggest ports in Asia, you can then, that justifies developing along that railway um, the, the land where you can have high intensity horticultural industries, etc., high value crops that you can be exporting to Asia, right? All because a railway line, a high speed railway line has made it possible. Well, that's tyranny of distance, Robbie, has overcome, and that's really the key here. And that's what the Chinese understand. They're doing, it, not, they're doing it because they are solving a problem before their cities crash. Yep. Unlike most of the Western uh, democracies today, you know, mm -hmm. New York City and so forth. And with a national bank, we can, collapse. this is not just a pie in the sky stuff. We can say, here's what we need to do. This will have this transformative effect. We can create the credit through our own bank to do it. I think we're moving in that direction, Robbie, because look, the system is going to break down. We're under, we haven't solved the global financial crisis whatsoever. So our politicians, our elected leaders, are going to hear these ideas screamed yep. more and more from the local populations. So just on that, both everything we've discussed in this segment has, is in our latest Australian Alert service. Call in and get a copy of it, including the article on how building infrastructure will easily support Australia's population growth.
We'll take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about foreign interference. Welcome back to the CEC Report. Finally, who is really interfering in our democracy? And a very significant event occurred last week, Craig, which I can't emphasise how significant it was, except it would have gone unnoticed by most people. And that was that ASIO, Australian Security Intelligence Organisation, which is our domestic spy agency, was moved by law from the Attorney General's department to, this, to a new department called Home Affairs. Right? And the Minister for Home Affairs is Peter Dutton. And what we have with Home Affairs, it's a super ministry that um, has all the law enforcement of Australia in the one ministry. And it, it very much is a super ministry fit for a police state. As it was happening, the same minister, Peter Dutton, mooted the idea that the Australian Signals Directorate should be given expanded powers to spy on Australians domestically. Yeah. Right? Now, they, they've only got powers to spy on people outside the country. That's right. That's, they're, legally. They're, they're there to look over yeah. things, etc. But they want to do that. Now, here's the main point I want to make because we don't, we don't have a lot of time and it's elaborated in, again in the alert service this week. Right? There's, there's an article that spells it out. This idea is not an Australian idea. When Peter Dutton has mooted this, the moving of ASIO to this department, this is not us doing something that we think is in our best interest. This is the apparatus called the Five Eyes directing us to step up our game or whatever to assist them. The Five Eyes is an intelligence sharing partnership between the UK, USA, Australia, New Zealand and Canada. It's not US centric, it is UK centric. Right? Four of those five countries have the Queen as head of state. All of those five countries had their intelligence agencies set up by British intelligence. Mm. Right? Even the, even the United States, right? Um, intelli secretive intelligence agencies, by, necessary, by definition, are anti-democratic. They're outside of democracy, and they're very, very powerful. By, by virtue of that, they can be very, very um, powerful, unless you have real oversight over them. But America didn't even think it needed them until World War II, yeah. right? And then the British persuaded them that, that they needed them. Now you've got things like the surveillance apparatus that was exposed by Edward Snowden, which is the National Security Agency, but it actually it's more the what they call GCHQ mm -hmm. in the United Kingdom, right? Which has more invasive. It can do things the NSA is not allowed to do. Edward Snowden revealed, right? And that's yep. it does there's massive global surveillance. And when we're doing this, it's because they're asking us to. Even the establishment of this department, Home Affairs, was set up when Turnbull went to the UK last July, met with the Prime Minister Theresa May and the Home Secretary there, Amber Rudd. And then he came back and announced, oh, we're going to do what the UK has got. We're going to have a home affairs department model in the home office. And in the home office, MI5 is based there. And that's why ASIO is going to be based in the home affairs department in Australia. And this is not for terrorism. We've, as we've said here a lot, look at MI5's history with relation to terrorism. They have colluded with terrorism. And the collusion has achieved two things. These terrorist attacks allow more powers for MI5, right? These extraordinary powers that we've come used to. And... In the UK, they actually blatantly allowed terrorists to recruit people to go to places like Libya and Syria to fight for the regime change policy that Britain supported. Yeah. Right? So it's the whole thing's a scam. So what do you think? I think, Robbie, people are going to look at this very seriously. The Five Eyes operation is not in our interests whatsoever. We talk about you know, China spying on us, but the real threat is this 
Well, it's right. ASIO that tells us China's a threat, but yeah. ASIO's not speaking for us. It's speaking for it's this part of this firewise. Exactly. So keep an eye on this. We will, we will, again, for more information, call in and get a copy of the Australian Alert Service. Thank you, Craig, for Thanks. joining us. Thanks, Robbie. Thanks for tuning in and tune in next week for more of the CEC Report.